We're in a series on community. What does it mean to be friends together in the church? We turn our eyes now toward Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a long passage, so you're welcome to stay seated as I read it. But please do uh, give your attention to God's Word. Romans chapter 14. First 1 to 4, and then I'll pick up at verse 20, and then I'll be in 1 Corinthians 8. This is the very word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. For if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom, all th- for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. For some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. For food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is betrayed, the brother for whom Christ died. It's destroyed, rather, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pray you'll help us to take this text, what is historically been a very confusing text for many Christians, and you'll make it clear for us as we seek to become friends and as we know what it means to affirm one another's strengths and as we learn today what it means to affirm each other as equals despite our preferences, despite our styles. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Forgive me if my voice sounds uh, um, like I'm sick. It normally doesn't sound this good. Um, But I am... Uh, beginning to get something, so please do pray for me that I make it through the sermon. We're in a series, as I mentioned, on what it means to be a community in the church, what it means to not just sit together, but what it means to eat together, what it means to actually do life together, to actually enjoy each other. And you heard last week that Scott talked about how we affirm one another's strengths, which is just a key principle in becoming good friends. And this week, we're going to see another principle We're going to see a divide between what we know in our heads and what we actually practice, a delta. Props to all the chemists out there for an outline that looks like some kind of science experiment. And then we're going to talk about case studies, real case studies, and apply this to our church together. Are you with me? A principle, a delta, and then case studies. Let's look at the text together. The principle of the text today is very simple. Scripture calls us to affirm one another's equality. Now, that doesn't sound like rocket science, does it? That we're all equal. But practically speaking, in the church, we really don't believe that. And we don't sideline people as though they are less important than others. We just slowly paper cut each other. We look down our nose at somebody because they don't have our particular preference or style. You know, you think about um, examples in Scripture where there were just these amazing changes in people before they became Christians and after. And the way the church modeled beautifully acceptance of people who would be very hard to accept only days before. Like the Apostle Paul. Like you remember Paul in Acts chapter uh, 8. He's there. They lay the cloaks at his feet after they stoned Stephen. And then what happens in chapter 9? Paul is headed to Damascus, this murderous rampage that he's on to kill other Christians. And deadly, he's going to seek other Christians out. And the Lord speaks to a man named Ananias and says to Ananias, Go find Saul, for I have called him to myself. And Ananias goes to Paul, and the text says that Ananias says, Brother Saul, Ananias certainly knew people. It wasn't that big of a world back then. He knew. He may have even had relatives who had been murdered by this man. And he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. It's an amazing exchange. It's almost otherworldly that this could possibly happen to us. There's a, um, some of you know Matthew Henry. He's a very famous Bible commentator. When his parents were getting married, his mother came from a very well-to-do family. And his father, Philip Henry, was part of the working class. And her parents were very concerned that this well-to-do proper woman was dating this working class boy named Philip. And they were concerned about it. And, And she said to them, both of them being strong in their faith, she said, Mom, Dad, I don't really care where he's been. I just care where he's going. And in many ways... Like, that is the principle for us together. I don't care where you've been. And some of you have been through hell and back. 
We just care where you're going. And the more we get to know each other, the we realize that we have all kind of had these strange journeys, and we've been brought together in this church. And as you get to know one another, you find that we actually have far more in common in Christ than you thought otherwise. When you come to the church, we always discover that Christians by default, because we are fallen human beings, being perfected in Christ, tend to put on a sense of oh, classism or stylism or division. We pick it up from the world because that's the world in which we came from. The world always has class divisions, economic divisions, class divisions, racial divisions. But Paul says that has no place in the church. This is the one place that is to be a pilot program to the world for what it means to be in true Christian unity, despite your background. Paul says we are called to be the church, not like Galatians 2 church where you sit together in church, but you refuse to eat together, you refuse to be seen in public together. Paul says, no, you are a church, Trinity. You're not a middle school for adults. You're a church where the cliques break down and you begin to appreciate one another. All right, that's the principle. Are you with me? We all have equality in Christ, but there's a delta. And I'm going to get into the text in this point. When you go to the Bible, you find that many of us... um, struggle with uh, what it means to accept others who have different styles. And there are many places in the New Testament where that was the case too. Principally in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, you find struggles. Paul terms them the strong and the weak. In Romans 15, 7, that Chris read earlier, it says, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed you. The word welcome in Greek means to receive them, to embrace them, to welcome them wholeheartedly. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you, have, you should have the same care. You should be anxious, troubled for each other. You should take thought for one another. But to understand the force of what Paul is saying, you have to understand the context of both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. In both of these letters in the Bible, there is a controversy about food. And 1 Corinthians 8 The gospel is going to the Gentiles, and there are Gentiles who are refusing to eat food that has been previously offered to idols. And so they abstain from the food. They have a very weak conscience, and they abstain. In Romans 14, there are people in the church who refuse to eat certain dietary, uh, certain uh, foods that, that cross dietary boundaries. And they abstain from those foods. In both cases, Paul says, the ones who abstain are weak. And the ones who are not abstaining are the strong. And Paul's point here, especially in uh, uh, the Roman church, as he says that, listen, in the, in the Corinthian church, in Romans chapter 8, the Gentiles were the ones who were afraid to eat the food that was offered to pagan idols. Because their whole life, they had eaten food in public settings in the context of temple worship. The Corinthians would eat food sacrificed to idols the way you and I eat at restaurants. It was the way of life for them. And it was by default commending this way of life. And so when they became Christians, they were like, I don't want any part of that anymore. 
I have to distance myself from that. But the Jews who were in Corinth were saying, what are you talking about? We know that there is no God but one. There's not even real idols. It's just me. Just eat it. And it became a division in the church. And they wrote Paul, and they asked for some advice here. It was the Gentiles in Corinth who were the weak ones, who couldn't eat the meat. And it was the Jews who were the strong ones. But notice in Romans chapter 14 what happens. In Romans chapter 14, there's a different issue, but it involves food, where the Jews refused to eat certain dietary foods that were against Old Testament law. And the Gentiles were like, listen, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. What's the big deal? Eat pork. Have some shellfish. And notice that in both situations, here's the point. In both situations, it was the opposite, wasn't it? That in Corinth, it was the Gentiles who were the weak and the Jews who were strong. But in Romans 14 and 15, it were the Jews who were weak and the Gentiles who were strong. And the point that I'm trying to make is simply this. Sometimes in one area of your Christian life, you can be very strong and very centered on the gospel. But in another area, you have a completely different blind spot that you don't even recognize that other people see about you. And this is what's called a delta in the Christian life. Between what you theologically know and what you emotionally practice. The Gentiles who came out of this pagan lifestyle theologically knew there was only one true God, but they were so emotionally encumbered in the culture that they were so fearful of being misunderstood by their parents, by their friends, by the people who watched them, that they, for the sake of their conscience and their peace of mind, abstained from certain things like food. Are you with me? And in Corinth, it was just the reverse. There were Jews who had grown up abstaining from pork, abstaining from all the dietary rules of the Old Testament. And now that they're free in Christ, they're welcome to eat those foods. So the Gentiles are totally enjoying themselves with these great foods. But the Jews were the ones pulling back from the foods. And the Gentiles are like, what is up with you? And the same thing happens to us. There are endless examples I could give about how we may believe something theologically, but emotionally we actually don't practice that. In this case, what Paul is saying to uh, both the Corinthians and to those in Rome is you would think that Paul would say to the weak, weak, friends, lighten up. The weak were the ones who were very narrow-minded, Paul suggests. They were the ones who were using extra-biblical rules to give peace to their conscience. And they were imposing those rules on others. And you would think that Paul would come down on them with a hammer and say, that's not the gospel. Quit making up rules that are outside the bounds of Scripture because whatever Scripture doesn't forbid is allowed. But notice that Paul doesn't do that. Did you hear what Chris read in Romans 15? Paul comes down on the strong in both of those situations. And he says to the strong, strong, you are the ones who are theologically, intellectually mature, but you know what? You're also emotionally mature to be able to align your practice with your theology. But you of all people, because you are emotionally mature enough to see and recognize what's going on in your younger brother, your weaker brother, you should carry him alongside you. Don't partake of these foods in an arrogant way saying, aha, we can eat these foods. They're so good. Don't you want to eat them? This happens, for example, all the times with people who come from um, uh, denominations that abstain from alcohol, by the way. 
And you have people who go to places where all good things can be enjoyed in moderation, of course. Never being drunk. That's a sin. And so people might say, hey, knowing that they're uh, coming out of a denomination or a world where alcohol was just completely forbidden, no matter what age you were, to a place where it's okay to enjoy a good glass of wine. And Paul would say to you, be very careful how you practice your liberty. Even though they may, for the sake of their conscience, not being indulging in a particular food or drink or habit or style or practice, you who are strong, Paul says, ought to be careful to limit your freedom for their sake. And rather than exclude them, bring them along. Encourage them. Help them understand why in the gospel we can now enjoy these things because God's word has not forbid them. Are you with me? Please hear me. This is so important, and I don't want to just be a talking head. Are you hearing me? Okay. There is a delta between what we theologically know and the emotions of our context and of our background and of our lifestyle that prevents a gap. And in that gap, you are tempted to make up rules to make things very black and white. And the frustrating thing about God's Word, if there could be anything frustrating about it, being very careful how I use that phrase, is that it tells us everything we need to know how we are reconciled with the Father through the work of Jesus Christ by His perfect life and death for us. And how we sinners can be brought back together in fellowship with Him. But it does not speak about the application of the gospel to every area of life. And this is where we need wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Because our temptation is to make up rules, to make boundaries. And sometimes there are, practically speaking, areas that are not clear. that are not specific enough in God's Word. And so you have to exercise discernment and wisdom. And if we don't allow our emotional IQ, as it were, to be as high as our theological IQ... We will create divisions in our church. So let me give you some case studies. The one we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, you know, is, is, uh, is clear. It's about the nature of food together. It's about uh, those who, uh, who, who do partake of the, the food that's sacrificed to idols, the Jews, and those who don't. It's of those who do eat the food that is um, restricted in the Old Testament, the Gentiles, and those who don't, the Jews. And Paul calls on the strong and the weak to accept one another as Christ has welcomed you. And to enter into what is a very complex situation about Christian liberty. And to lead by faith and love, not by rules. Because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And what does it mean to lead with faith? It means to lead with the knowledge that my identity is rooted in what Christ Jesus has done for me in His righteousness. However fearful I might be of being rejected by my culture, by my family, by my friends, who now see me perhaps doing something that may have been forbidden in my other subculture, whether it's going to church in a subculture you grew up in where people laughed at those people who went to church, or it's going to a particular denomination where people used to laugh at those people who went to that denomination. Or whether it's, um, you know, uh, saying that, you know, the ultimate, uh, you know, place you find divine truth is in a book, which we believe in the Bible. This is the place to find truth. And people laugh at that idea. There's a delta between our emotional maturity and our theological maturity. 
and we have to slowly close the gap. Let me give you some case studies to apply it. Singles and marrieds in the church. Singles in Tulsa feel equal everywhere they go, almost everywhere they go, except the church. And they are constantly being set up by married couples. You ever notice that? It's as though the married couples don't really imply it, don't really mean to imply it, but they do. They almost like, you know what? I'm so sorry you're so lonely and you're so incomplete. I will help fix you. And so they, they try to set people up. They don't mean to do it. But what we do, there's this sense in which singles are kind of like over here, like they're not yet complete human beings. And who are the strong and the weak in this situation, by the way? In 1 Corinthians 7, who does Paul call the strong? Paul calls the strong the singles who are not given over to the passions of their flesh. And he calls the weak those who cannot abstain from the passions of the flesh, who therefore need to get married. The tables are turned. And the singles, on the other hand, when, when a married couple tries to set you up with somebody, singles, please don't be offended by that. Please take that as a compliment. They know you. They love you. They just want somebody who they know to gobble you up because they want their friends to know each other. It's a total compliment. It's not to be something that is divisive or it's a compliment. And so both singles need to receive that kind of thing as compliments. And marrieds need to be careful that when they're around singles, they don't always talk about kids for like an hour and a half and drive them crazy. You welcome singles into your home. Singles, you welcome marrieds into your home. You become friends. You become family. You become one. Are you with me? Do you see how there's kind of a delta? Like you know that no matter what your marital status is, you're equal in Christ's eyes. But sometimes our habits create subtle, frustrating uh, social environments. So be careful. Let your emotional IQ and your theological IQ be the same. Gordon Fee, by the way, says marriage or singleness per se lies totally outside the category of the commandments to be obeyed or sin if one indulges. Paul's preference to remain single is not predicated on spiritual grounds, but on pastoral concerns in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, let's go to another example. The churched and the unchurched. There are some here today who have not been to church in a long time, and we are so pumped you're here. But when you walk into this church, there's a lot of weird things going on. Like you rarely sit and listen to a guy speak anymore. Your college days are over. You don't hear anybody talk for more than 25 minutes. And you sing songs and you read. It's like, is this like a, what is this place? It's weird. Saying things out of a bulletin together. That's strange. And those of us who, who have been coming here for worship for a long time find the order of worship beautiful. And we're just waiting to worship. We can't wait to do it. And we have to be careful that in our arrogance, we don't forget that there are those here who have never experienced this. And so we need to constantly be re-explaining why we do what we do. And those who, who um, may appear to be strong, those who keep coming to church week after week and know the drill and know the patterns and habits and liturgies, maybe they're the weak ones. And maybe the ones who are bold enough to come darken the door of a strange and unfamiliar place, maybe they're the strong ones. And so regardless... We are to be a church that, Romans fifteen seven welcomes one another as Christ welcomes us. Let there be no divisions among us. In Christ, there is equality. Do we practice that? Let's keep going. Can you think of other examples? What do you think? How about parents and non-parents? Hmm? Like, 
there's subtle divisions in the church between those who have parents and those. So like when, you get, when parents get together, they always talk about their kids. But when there's not parents there, the parents need to be careful not to dominate the conversation with children because there are those there who, while they want to get to know you, frankly, they don't want to hear about diapers. They don't want to hear about how wonderful it is to have children because they may have been trying to have kids for a long time and can't. Or maybe they're not even called to have kids. The greatest parent, one of the greatest parents I knew when I was growing up was a veterinarian who was married to a pediatrician named Kenneth and Kathy Soltemeyer. They never had biological kids. But they were adult sponsors for Young Life. And they had hundreds of teenagers in their home. And they practically raised hundreds of children together. And I still have notes in my office from Kenneth Soltemeyer that he wrote to me before I left to go to college where I treasured his, like he was a parent to me, even though he was never a biological parent. Are we a church that allows for parents and non-parents to have community group together? Are we centered on the gospel, Christ's righteousness for us? Or are we centered on styles or preferences or life stages? Do you hear me? Are you applying this in your heart? Let's think of another example. It was food in in the New Testament, but what are other examples? How about um, degree or no degree? How about working class or white, blue collar or white collar? How about um, cradle Presbyterian? I think there were maybe like two in this room. And those of us who didn't come from a Presbyterian background, right? You can go on and on and on. What about, um, let's, 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 let's just get real. Let's, let's talk about public school, private school, homeschool, right? Bring it. What about that? Like, there are those of us who say, well, of course you have to private school your children. Why, why would you give your child to the pagan secular gods of a secular curriculum that I have no control over? And on the other hand, those who send their kids to public school will say, well, how will the public school get any better if we pull all the great kids out? Not quite as easy, is it? And so maybe we ought to say, you know what? It's okay. Public school, private school, homeschool, man, we're a family. And I have a lot to learn from those parents who choose other ways to educate their kids. And you have a lot to learn from those parents who choose other ways to educate their kids. And we learn from each other. So that the identity, I cannot say this enough. I know I feel like a broken record. But our identity is our unity around the gospel. It is not our style. It is not our denominational background. It is rooted in Christ's righteousness for us. And this takes a lot of processing. And I hope, even though there's a game tonight that's going to distract some of the community groups, I hope in the weeks to come, we'll think of more case studies to think through this together. What are the areas where you think you're strong, but actually you might be quite weak? Areas where what you may know theologically to be true Your intellectual, your theological IQ may be quite mature. You're emotionally very immature. And you're demanding that other people follow you in your your certain styles or your certain preferences that are actually extra-biblical commands, things about which Scripture does not so clearly speak. And on the other hand, maybe you don't demand that others follow your pattern, but you just simply don't take the time or energy to get to know them. You Galatians chapter 2 them, where you say you're good buddies, and then whenever you're in public with them, you don't eat with them. Are you with me? If we can fight as a church to recognize that what Paul says in both cases is to the strong, he condemns the behavior of the strong who are the emotionally mature to say, 
you need to take your younger brother, your older brother, the weaker brother, by the arm and say, let's walk through this together. I love you. I want to learn from you. And this is not, by the way, the modern notion of tolerance. I'm saying these are things and areas where Scripture does not clearly speak, these case studies that I've given examples for, or areas where we are growing into our understanding of the gospel like they were in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. The modern view of tolerance says, you don't judge another man for anything they do, man or woman, for whatever they do. And the modern view of tolerance says, you don't change your lifestyle at all for the sake of those who who are around you. So that if somebody's around you and doesn't like you, you're offended at them. That's modern tolerance. You don't change, you don't judge, but you also don't change. Christianity is the exact opposite of that. It says that by God's word, we are called to judge one another in conformity with what Scripture calls us to do and to be. But in those areas where we may have different preferences or styles, it doesn't say you should stay your ground and you should make them conform to you. No, it says that you you are the ones who should change your lifestyle or behavior to welcome them and to take them by the arm and walk them closer and closer to the cross and to the gospel. Are you with me? The gospel is totally different than modern tolerance. In the areas about which Scripture does not specifically speak, we should be a church that is centered on the life-giving good news of Christ's righteousness. So our cry should not be NASCAR or NPR. Our cry should not be public school or private school. Our cry should not be political party persuasion. Our cry should be Christ and his righteousness unites us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the church that this region needs. And it's not going to be possible with two men that you've called to be your pastors to lead you in that. You are the ministers of this church, church. And you are to exemplify that in areas of your life that you have access to, where Scott and I could never possibly go, where the elders could never possibly go. Are you using the gospel to apply it to every situation in your life? Or are you making up rules that are outside the bounds of Scripture by which you are demanding other people conform to your preferences or styles or behavior patterns that are actually not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Clear? I pray so. I could go on with more and more case studies, um, but I will stop there. In Christ, we have equality together. And those of you who are here who are not in Christ, we long for you to see Jesus, that the one place in the world where you can come and you can be broken is the church, where the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ takes you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way, and he will conform you more and more into his image. And he calls us to be a true church, unified, not a place of particular styles or persuasions, though, yes, we have to pick a liturgy, and we've picked one. But that is not what unifies us. It is the gospel that unifies us. That is our calling card, and that is our only hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray 
that you would help us to recognize the areas of our life where the gospel has not yet connected, where we may know in our heads the truth of the gospel, but yet we may not emotionally be at the place where we are able to disentangle ourselves from our culture enough to be able to apply the gospel well. Would you help us, Father, to have both an objective perspective of our culture and yet, as members of it, be able to apply the gospel in every sphere and situation in which we find ourselves? Father, thank you that you have called us to be equal in Christ. Thank you, Father, that it is not preference or style. It is the righteousness of Jesus that unites us. Let us, Father, like Ananias, reach out to those who we disdained before we became Christians. And help us, Father, to put our hand on them and say, Oh, brother, oh, sister, we are family. Would you do that for your glory's sake? Make us a church. Make us something beautiful for you and your kingdom. Make us a pilot project of your kingdom for the world. Make us friends. Make us a community, we ask and beg of you. In Jesus' name, amen.